South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and Stephanie Burke. And just make sure that I put everything back in. Oh, wait, no, I just played I just played the spooky <laughs> South Coast theme over the Red Sox game. Well, that's not good. So there's still that. That's, that's good. Anyway. Maybe nobody noticed. I can still hear it. That's because you have the volume up on that computer, I? I think. Yeah. <gasps> it is me. Hold on. That's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. We're we're internet only tonight, so. All right, it stopped. Yeah, you don't have to worry about it. It's, it's internet only, so you don't need to. Uh, be professional. Yeah, you don't need to. Uh, I was going to say you don't need to be exactly perfect. Okay. I would still hope that you can I mean, I maintain that, some but... some level of professionalism. <laughs> but uh, we are back after taking last week off. We were uh, at the Ocean State Paracon by day and investigating the Sprague Mansion by night. Stephanie, that was a cool place. It was awesome, actually. The history was amazing. One of the thing, well, of course, I mean, I made no secret about the fact that I was fired up for the punch, and right, the punch right, definitely right. lived up to its you know billing. What? I'm sad, and I'm sad to say that I did not get any punch. Oh, that, no, that's because you didn't want any punch. That's like, not true. We're telling you, like the punch was ready. Like, mm. No, I I went out to the car to eat because we couldn't eat inside, and when I came back in, everybody was investigating. So the punch was out there all night. I didn't know. There I had was, no idea. There was snacks. I told you there was like little chocolate chocolate snacks that you could have. Mm, Por- Porter and I back. destroyed all the cheese and crackers. Did though. you? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because Mary was so sweet. Mary mm-hmm. and uh, and her husband, Greg, they're the ones that are the live-in caretakers of the Sprague Mansion. Yep. And they put out this nice little spread with the punch with the eyeball floating in it. And uh, and then they had all these little treats out for us. Mm-hmm. and. And so, like I said, Porter and I ate, like, all the cheese and crackers and the grapes and everything. And we're like, well, that's that's the end of that. She brings out, like, another platter of cheese oh, and crackers. Cute. Oh, so it was adorable. Oh. And they were such nice people. I mean, I was a little bit thrown off when they said that they live on the property. When they said that they live in, in half of the house, I was like, well, now we're just basically ghost hunting in your house. Right. Like, we're keeping you up late on a Saturday night because we're running around your house looking for ghosts. Like, this just feels weird now. And then they have to sleep there, knowing that there's ghosts in there. Well, they knew anyway. Oh, okay. They, they shared some stories with us. <laughs> I just thought it was uh, hilarious that when, um, j- you know, we're, uh, being the you know the person putting on the event, running the event, you're always worried about uh, how people are reacting. You know, are people having a mm-hmm. good time? Is this what they want? Do they want to get into things? And because we had such a limited window of time to investigate, that uh, I was really concerned that people would be hung up on. We got a little too deep into some of the history mm-hmm. on the tour beforehand and I was like ah, like these folks are going to start to be like why are we still listening to Greg talk about the history why aren't we investigating and I just thought it was hysterical when I mentioned it to everybody and they're like no I, I could have listened to him talk all night I would have rather have heard him talk than, than investigate with some of the stories he was telling wow. us so I was like oh thank goodness because he had some great stories he did he definitely lots did lots of things that I learned Saturday night that I never knew about New England in, in that era of history. Mm-hmm. So I highly recommend people take the tour of the Sprague Mansion. You can do so. They're only open Thursdays from like 1 to 4 or something like that for tours. But I highly recommend going there and checking it out. Here's the thing. A lot of people have asked if we're going to go back there and do another investigation. The board of directors of the Cranston Historical Society does not want a lot of ghost relationship they don't want that to be what the place is known for. In fact, that's why they've waited so long before they let somebody come in and do another investigation. So it may take some convincing. It may take some doing, but we're going to try. 
and uh, I, I have plans. I timed myself on the way home to see how long it took to get home, mm-hmm. and uh, I have plans to go there and give them a formal presentation. That's cool. At some point. You know, we'll, we're going to get some of the stuff back from everything that went on, mm-hmm. and I want to go and give them a formal presentation and say, here's how we can help you guys make some money. Right. So hopefully that'll work out and they'll let us back in, but we'll see what we can do about that. But it's okay because we already have we have another event coming up if people want to come out and ghost hunt. We have uh, some more stuff in the works. Um, just waiting for Leanne to give us the okay mm-hmm. on uh, everything's ready to go. But, of course, we have coming up on August 12th, Ghost of the Gateway at the Fearing Tavern. So you want to get your tickets to that at SpookySouthCoast.com. Right. We're, uh, we're still going to try and have the kickball game. Okay. I'm still uh, trying to secure a field where we can do that. We're going to do a little – because I've wanted to do this for a couple of years now where before an event – because everybody's coming to town anyway – like, and people get there early, and they want to hang out for the day. So I was thinking, like, maybe we would just get together and find a field and just play a, a game of kickball, paranormal kickball. So we're going we're gonna to do that. Why not use the parking lot at the nail factory? Because I wanted to try to get, like, an actual field. Like, I'm trying to get permission to use, like, the high school softball field or something like that. But I'm still waiting to hear back from uh, the athletic director and everything because they, they get very protective of the fields. And you... It, the biggest problem is because of insurance liabilities. That's the biggest issue. It's it's not right. people think it's because they don't want you to go and mess up the grass and well who cares if they use a softball field because they're not going to use it again till next spring. Well, that's not the point. The point is if somebody gets hurt on school property even though school isn't in session, the town is still responsible so they right. you know they get weird about all this kind of stuff. But if I can get us some permission and by the way I did get permission back about the nail factory. It's a no-go mm. at this time. So but they the town administrator did say that before they start getting things going with the redevelopment of the nail factory, because we've been trying for so many years to get in there, that they're going to try and make something work. Well, that's cool. Somewhere down the line. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but anyway, so again, we have Ghost of the Gateway. And then on, uh, on September 23rd, we've secured the date. We're just waiting to get the final okay to have uh, a Lizzie Borden event there. So, And we've got some other stuff in the works, we've, some stuff we want to do in October. Just sign up for the Spooky South Coast mailing list at SpookySouthCoast.com, and you will always stay up to date with everything that we are doing. Why don't we do some news right now? Uh, Our news correspondent, Ashley Turner, is not with us tonight. She has other plans, but she did send along the news report for us. So why don't we run that right now, and then when we come back, I'll give a little bit of a, a teaser about some announcement that was made this week we can we can talk a little bit about. Mm-hmm. Something that we've been dancing around for a couple of weeks. We can talk about that formally. We'll have uh, we'll have Matt get our guest on the on the line tonight too as well. We're talking tonight to David Goudsward, who is uh, an old friend of the show. We've had Dave on a couple of times. Uh, you might remember him talking about some of the ancient stone sites of New England on his first appearance, and uh, he's actually going to be joining us and talk about. He has some new books, and that is actually going to be the focus of the discussion tonight. Tonight we're going to be talking about his book, The Horror Guide to New England, the horror guide, oh, the horror guide to Northern New England, I should say, The Horror Guide to Massachusetts, The Horror Guide to Florida. These are some new books that he has coming out, a new series, and we're going to talk about that. These are sites that uh, are associated with scary stories and, and all kinds of stuff. So we're going to get into some pretty interesting tales and legends tonight with David Godsward coming up in just a bit. Uh, but before that, why don't we get all the latest news from our news correspondent, Ashley Turner. The first story I have for you only came out a few days ago from a couple in England who witnessed the black rings. For those who don't know what the black rings are, they are often connected to UFOs or smoke vortexes. The witness said that it looked a bit smoky, but the shape was a solid ring form. 
But right before this was brought to the attention of the Americans, there was a similar sighting and reporting in Missouri. Could this be the same black rings? Is it connected somehow? Both are still under investigation, and it's something that I'm going to keep an eye out for to see what they bring up and more information I can bring to you for next week. Mm-hmm. Next story, we're moving across to Egypt. There's been a claim that the Egyptian priest who is no longer living has been caught on video. Sean Reynolds and Rebecca Palmer are a ghost hunting duo who are filming in the museum, which holds the tomb of Egyptian priest Nisium. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, and I apologize. The video already has 28,000 views on YouTube, but there's a lot of debate going on, as if they really caught something or if it's a hoax, because the third person that you see in the video prior to that steps out of frame and is right then and there when you see the shadow that is supposedly the priest. Take a look at the video. It will be up on our Facebook page. And let me know what you think. I'm interested to know what you guys think. I'm personally still on the fence about it. It's a cool video to watch. Just check it out. And our last one comes from our Facebook page and Twitter. Um, it's quite disturbing and disgusting. And that's what I like to, to read about, I guess. I'm not really sure. Um... It's a parasite that destroys a tongue of fish and then replaces itself as its tongue for the rest of the lifespan. Now, it's the ugliest looking thing I could possibly ever imagine. Like, I had visions of this, like, while I was sleeping. It was bad. But we had some comments on Facebook from it from Kristen Tower. She says, this is why I don't go outside too much. It's scary out there. Cheryl Nelson says, just no way. Ew. I am with them 100%. The more I find out about the water... Here I am loving it, and I'm a water guru, and then I find out about this stuff, and I'm just like, eh, not no more. So I'm, I'm going to be staying away from the water from now on. But, um, yeah, so that's what I have for you guys this week. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to stay up to date with our new stories during the week. Thank you, and have a good night, guys. Bye! So that's, uh, that's Ashley with the news, and, uh, and I can tell you this much. If she thinks that's ugly... She needs to spend more time around mm. some of the people that we deal with. Right. That's, but uh, nice to get the uh, the Kristen and the Mama Cheryl shout-outs yes, there in the comments. And that's sure. that's what Ashley's going to be doing. She's going to be putting the stories up during the week. Matt, that's been working out pretty well, right, with Ashley putting stories up. And uh, and that's a chance for you to interact with the stories and get your comments possibly read on Spooky South Coast during the week and weird. So, And we gotta, we got to make some – got to make a new opening, a new, yeah. like a new news intro with for her as well. Agreed. So. We'll see if we can get some. Uh, we'll see if we can get some music. That'd be awesome. From people. Speaking of music, I haven't heard back from uh, from Mike yet. I uh, I think they're investigating, so their phones are off. But there is, if you okay. So before we get into our discussion with Dave Goudsward, I just want to talk about this for a few moments. Okay. Dave, if you don't mind hanging on, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that's okay. So. We've been talking for, and we had Porter on a few weeks ago for a few moments, and we, we mentioned that there's this new show, and we couldn't talk about it. Right. But uh, so f- now we can finally get it out there. Ghost Asylum is no more. Right. But the Tennessee Wraith Chasers have a new program that will be debuting August 15th on Destination America called Haunted Towns. And so this is the project that I was working on for the last couple of months, researching locations and putting this all, basically what this is is instead of having to go and investigate one asylum, prison, school, what have you, for one night, well, well, for a couple of nights, but for one location, Mm -hmm. instead of having to do that now, the guys are going and spending time in an entire town and investigating multiple locations in that town where the activity is believed to be connected. Right. 
So it's not just like you're going to a place where you know there's there's five different haunted places and it's all five different things. Like you mm-hmm. can go to you can go to New Bedford and I can find you five different haunted locations to go investigate, but I can't give you the commonalities between those hauntings. I can't give right. you a, what a, the connection is some sort of a connection. Right. But these all have something that is tying them all together. And actually, they did visit New Bedford as part of one of the they episodes, did. but I don't want to give too much away. You uh, can't. Not yet. I, well, I can. I, I mean, they've, yeah. they've made it known that the the uh, the Fall River episode is about Lizzie Borden. Right. So when, when you put that together, you say, well, why would they go to New Bedford for Lizzie Borden? Don't give it away. You can figure it's out gonna why. It's going to be so good. I know, but they can figure out Don't why. Don't do it. So uh, it'll, be, it'll be airing August 15th is the debut episode. It'll be, that'll be Gettysburg. They've already right. announced that. We don't know what the episode order will be after that. But the first episode will be Gettysburg. And if you want to watch it ahead of time, you can watch it beginning August 7th, a whole week early, by downloading the Destination America Go app, which I have on my phone. And if you don't have it already, it's a great thing to download. You can get it for any mobile device. And you can also get the Destination Unknown on your Amazon Prime, which is also pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. And what this does is this gives you full access to all of the Destination America shows. So, except Ghost Stalkers for some reason. But you can watch all the episodes mm-hmm. of Ghost Asylum, Ghost of Shepherdstown. Uh, you can watch Kindred Spirits on there. You can watch uh, That's a good one. Paranormal Lockdown. They're all right there for you to download and watch anytime. And they're going to debut the first episode of Haunted Towns early on that, on August 7th. That's awesome. So you'll be able to do all that. So I, I hope that everybody tunes in. I hope that everybody watches it. I hope that everybody enjoys it. They're already running promos for it. Yes, and I get to see the promos before they came out this past weekend. And I actually get to see it on um, when they aired it last night during the Kindred Spirits Marathon. It's It's been going since since about, well, since Monday. Monday yep. they released it with the Hollywood Reporter story. Uh, and they've been running it for, you know, the last week. But I was tuning into Destination America here and there. And, right. you know, not really seeing it run during some of the, the paranormal shows. But as of last night and today, it it's was on pretty much every lot. break. But I do have to say, I am not a huge ghost show fan. Um, I promised you that I would watch Haunted Towns because you were a part of it. Now, knowing Porter as uh, well as I do. I've been involved in other shows that she doesn't watch. I didn't. It's because of Porter. Um, I did promise Porter that I would watch it. So, when I got to see the promo, I think I asked about 10 million questions about you know, the EVP that they caught, which is awesome. So right. that alone makes me want to watch it. Well, and the the promo that that Porter has too is a little bit longer than this one. Right. So I'm sure that they'll be airing like more, you right. know, longer promos as it goes on. But but it looked awesome. It really it, did, and I love the history aspect of the show as well. And if you've been listening to it and you've been hearing the song in the background, that song was actually put together by the Tennessee Wraith Chasers to yes. be the theme song of the show. Uh, Mike Gonzalez is a musician. Uh, right. That's kind of like his his main. His main Joe. outlet, his main yep. creativity, uh, the main way that he uh, he funnels his creativity. And so they put together the song, and you can hear it. You can download it. If you are on iTunes, if you're on Google Play, you can download the song. The name of the band that was put together for the recording is called South Tunnel, and the song is called uh, Run, Tell the Devil. Yes, and that was put together by Mike, Chris, Porter, and Brannon. And I, I didn't get permission from Mike to, to play it. So I think what I can do, though, because it's on the Internet. It is. Let's see if I can pull up the... uh, I have it on my phone if you need it. Nope, nope, nope. 
I want to do it the way. The right way? The way that would be legal enough for us. Okay. Well, I don't see it coming up in the search, but uh, we will uh, We'll wait and see. Maybe by the end of the show, Mike will get back to us while they're on that investigation and will tell us, hey, it's fine, fine, you know, because I think that he's the technical rights holder. So I think if we get his permission, we'll be all right. I don't know. Unless, unless the network bought it from him, then we're screwed. Yeah. I don't think so. I think <laughs> they all have a part of it. <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll see if we can. But anyway, just go download it. It's only a dollar, and it's worth it. Honestly, it is worth it. I mean, I'm a country fan anyways, but... I am not. You are not, and you like it. Yes. I am not afraid to admit that I do not like country music, but I like this song. Well, let's get into the discussion tonight with our guest. He's been kind enough to wait a few moments for us, and uh, we've had him on the show before in the past, and he's joining us again. David Goudsward, welcome to the show. I'd give you a big fancy uh, introduction, but you know we're, we're doing this laid back and relaxed tonight because we're YouTube only. Okay, I can, I can live with that. More <laughs> importantly, I no longer have the Red Sox in my other ear. Oh, really? Is that what it, it was kicking out the game into your... Your hold music really, really is not what I was looking for. Well, you know, I'm sorry. You've been in here in the studio with us. You know what it's like to have to sit and wait for the Red Sox to get over. So we're just happy that now we don't have to do that anymore. We can just stream over YouTube and still get the well, show out there remember, on time. No matter how bad it gets, the local team here is the Marlins. Well, you guys have won a couple championships, right? At least one that I can remember. I, I wouldn't have the faintest idea. <laughs> All I know is that they are the most hated ownership in the entire universe. Well, that much is true. That much is absolutely true. And that's that's the entire depth of my sports background. Well, you are in Florida, but you are a, a Massachusetts transplant, though, right? Yes. And... Uh, you know, I, I was reading the beginning of the the horror guide to Florida, and in the uh, the introduction that someone wrote for you there, talks about how Florida people don't really like the feeling that other states have toward them. But being a originally a Massachusetts person, I mean, do you get defensive about Florida when people make Florida jokes? Oh heck, I'm the I'm in the front with the torch and the patar. <laughs> I I. Um, I'm going to put this as delicately as possible. If, God forbid, something happens to my wife, before she's in the ground, I'll have the for sale sign on the house. <laughs> so when we and, make... And they say romance is dead. When, when we make jokes about Florida man, then you're, on, you're 100% on board with those, right? Oh, heck, I've met him. <laughs> <laughs> I just found the Florida man Twitter account the other day. That, that it's was... All true. <laughs> all true. That was a fun trip to go down. Well, why don't we start by talking about, about Florida uh, a little bit, and then we'll kind of work our way back up here, because Florida is one of those places where there's uh, there's a, you know, same thing with Massachusetts. There's a lot of different cultures down there. There's a lot of different, because there's been a lot of transplants who have come from other places and, and moved to Florida. There's also their own native legends, their own native stories. Is Florida like a, a perfect storm for a bunch of these legends and stories to come together? Well, um, it's a perfect storm in the sense of they have more motivation to make the stories known. Um, the example I can give you off the top of my head immediately is I am currently working on a history of Florida sea serpent sightings. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And what I have discovered is that about 90% of them are complete and utter nonsense. And... The problem with them is that before we had air conditioning, 
the only place you could stay down here, take the train down, and you'd stay at a hotel near the ocean. Well, if bookings were a little off, you suddenly had a uh, sea serpent sighting nearby. Ah. And it made all the papers. It ran. New York was constantly running newspaper articles about sea serpents near hotels down here. In fact, um, Miami had a running joke for years that they always knew when it was tourist season because the first sea sighting had happened. <laughs> is is that? I mean, there's got to be a lot of marketing in, involved with the things that go down there because when you're on, when you're in Florida, you are competing for. Uh, attention for tourist attention. There's lots of different things for people to get involved with when they go down there. I'm sure you know Disney is a huge draw, so other towns in Florida have to be like, well, what can we get people to stop in our town for if they're if they're already heading to Orlando or maybe they're heading somewhere else? And there's there's got to be a lot of that in there too, where you get these legends and you find a way to market them so that you can kind of get on the map. Well, one word, Casadega. Yes, absolutely. Um, there were a lot more fun tourist stops. I'm not going to call them traps, but uh, uh, we could go either way on a few of them. But they're all gone because the mouse basically sucked in all the money. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Weeki Wachi Springs, the mermaids, are now park rangers, technically. They, the state took over the spring, so all the mermaids are now employees. So technically they are park rangers. Hmm. Park rangers with tails, um, <laughs> but they were filming uh, Tarzan movies at Crystal Springs. Uh, Creature of the Black Lagoon, of course, was all over down here. Um, there's an entire museum. I don't even know how to explain it anymore. It's now Marineland Dolphin Encounter. It is a former film location. They built a giant fish tank with windows all the way around it so that you could film your scuba divers, or you could film your creature of the Black Lagoon, or you could film underwater. It was designed as a business to fill a niche, and then the tourists found it, and it became even more popular, and then Disney opened up, and here we are. Well, but I think, too, that one thing about Florida and and these legends that they have is they do have a, a very... A lot of them have a strong native influence too. Like, uh, so some of the stuff is going to go, you know, it's going to predate Walt Disney. It's going to predate that influx of tourism. So there's always going to be this this tie to the history of Florida with some of these stories that are out there. Yeah, and I, it, it, the, uh, suddenly I'm having trouble talking. It must be live radio. Um, <laughs> part of the problem is that it's being lost. I mean, it's all oral tradition. And it's being modified, it's being sanitized, and the original stories are fascinating, um, and particularly cryptozoology, which is kind of my strong suit tonight on Florida. There are, you know, half the state is a swamp. And before they started developing air conditioning and real estate booms, most of the state was a swamp. If you look at a map of Florida and see Lake Okeechobee, Basically, everything east, west, and south of it was Everglades. And people just started carving out little civilizations along the shore. Well, they're running into large things that they have not encountered before. Alligators. um, The Indians have a long history down here of giant serpents. But there are no Indian 
traditions written down, first or second generation. These are all, oh, yeah, I saw this snake, and it's the one the Indians used to talk about. Well, that doesn't help. So, yeah, there's a lot of it. But the question now is how much of it has been modified by, you know, multi multiple generations of people telling the story versus marketability. Um, the swamp ape or a skunk ape. That's a good example. There isn't a lot of sightings of it down here, but there are plenty of sightings of it. If you go on to History Channel, Travel Channel, there's more skunk ape activity up at Lauren Coleman's museum up in Portland than there is actually in the swamp. Right. Well, I think, though, that a good part of it is when you... Florida's a place that when you don't live there and when it's a place that you go... History Channel, Travel Channel. There's more skunk ape activity up at Lauren Coleman's museum up in Portland than there is actually in the swamp. Right. Well, I think, though, that a good part of it is when you... Florida's a place that when you don't live there and when it's a place that you go... History Channel, Travel Channel. There's more skunk ape activity up at Lauren Coleman's museum up in Portland than there is actually in the swamp. Right. Well, I think, though, that a good part of it is when you... Florida's a place that when you don't live there and when it's a place that you go... History Channel, Travel Channel. There's more skunk ape activity up at Lauren Coleman's museum up in Portland than there is actually in the swamp. Right. Well, I think, though, that a good part of it is when you... Florida's a place that when you don't live there and when it's a place that you go... History Channel, Travel Channel. There's more skunk ape activity up at Lauren Coleman's museum up in Portland than there is actually in the swamp. Right. Well, I think, though, that a good part of it is when you... Florida's a place that when you don't live there and when it's a place that you go... History Channel, Travel Channel. There's more skunk ape activity up at Lauren Coleman's museum up in Portland than there is actually in the swamp. Right. Well, I think, though, that a good part of it is when you... Florida's a place that when you don't live there and when it's a place that you go... History Channel, Travel Channel. There's more skunk ape activity up at Lauren Coleman's museum up in Portland than there is actually in the swamp. Right. Well, I think, though, that a good part of it is when you... Florida's a place that when you don't live there and when it's a place that you go... History Channel, Travel Channel. There's more skunk ape activity up at Lauren Coleman's museum up in Portland than there is actually in the swamp. Right. Well, I think, though, that a good part of it is when you... Florida's a place that when you don't live there and when it's a place that you go... History Channel, Travel Channel. There's more skunk ape activity up at Lauren Coleman's museum up in Portland than there is actually in the swamp. Right. And this is as close as you're going to get to the equator without actually getting your feet wet. Um, and as early as the silent movies. Silent movie capital was Jacksonville. During the winters, it got too cold in New York to film because you had to you had to put lights and heat on, and 
both of them involved fire, and the film they were using had a nasty tendency to ignite. So when it got cold, they moved to Florida. So immediately, you've got all of this perception visually being impacted all along. I mean, um, there's a great... Jacksonville had a great fire, like every other good community in America. And what happened was, when they rebuilt, they rebuilt in such a hurry that they let any architectural style go on. So these silent movie people would come down. They needed sand to do Egypt. They'd film on the shore. They had sand, sometimes more realistically than others. But they also could go to the Masonic Temple in Jacksonville, which was built in the Egyptian revival style. Throw a few palm trees to hide the lamppost, and boom, you've got your set. And even then, it's it's Florida being adaptable as long as you bring your money with you. And that just continues. Uh, they didn't need to film Creature of the Black Lagoon down here. I mean, they have film tanks in Hollywood, but right. you could use the palm trees. You could use, um, what's the, the second one, Revenge of the Creature? That uses the St. John's River. You want to know what um, Jacksonville looked like in the 1930s or 40s or 50s? Find a movie. And it's just a, a continual perception. Disney built in Florida not because he wanted the tropics. That helps because you can leave it open year-round. But because the land was cheap. Why was the land cheap? You had swamp. So it's... it's I think the best way to put it is, you've got money, we're willing to give you the opportunity, you're an opportunist, you'll fit right at home. So the marketing is all geared toward how do we get the tourists, how do we get the money from the tourists, how do we get rid of the tourists. By the way, I'm going to get a letter from the Chamber of Commerce about <laughs> this. Well, it does seem, though, that uh, with with the... I mean, it, just looking through the book, looking through the horror guide to Florida, it seems like there's no municipality down there that doesn't have some sort of connection to stories that were told, movies that were made, you know, being a location in a, in a fictional book or being the, the place where an actual sighting took place. It, it just seems like every town has been touched in some way. Well, one of the great advantages to a statement like that is you're right because at that point they didn't have as many communities nowadays um it's i don't know how familiar you are with pennsylvania but florida is kind of set up the same way you have these townships and then you have these villages within them that have separate governmental control down here it's the same thing i live in a town called lake worth except for the fact that i don't live in lake worth my zip code is also Green Acres, which is by itself a whole different story, and Wellington. I don't live in any of those towns. I live in unincorporated Palm Beach County. And as a result of that, I can say I live in any one of those three towns, but on the other hand, I don't. So a lot of the material that is filmed in a town may actually not be filmed there. It may be in the swamp next door to it that's technically not within the city borders, but how else do you describe it to somebody? Right. There, There's... I mean, I guess there's a lot of that, though, too, isn't there? Like, there's still... I mean, we look at things here in Massachusetts and, and through our New England lens where everything is kind of... 
it's a town, and every town has its borders, and every town has its has its government. And but when you get to a place like Florida, a lot of things are kind of in that way. It's like you, you're described more by county than you are by by town. And, yeah, and but it depends on the town also. I mean, I mean Miami is not a city; it's the whole county. It's like Philadelphia or Boston. You know, it, it is technically a government that covers a county's functions, but it's also a municipality. Um, Philadelphia, particularly, they have a real aggressive ability to just grab all the communities that are near them and absorb them. And you almost need a separate map of Philadelphia County to figure out where things were before they became part of Philadelphia. Down here, it's the opposite. Down here, Lake Worth is a community. It has its own power grid. It has its own water supply. It has its own uh, coast line. It has its own um, harbor master. You walk one foot outside of those town borders, and it's county water, county electric, county sewage, if you even have sewage. That's a long story. And it's all maintained there. You do not see... Um, state police presence, except on the state roads, the sheriff does everything. In fact, some of the smaller communities, such as um, well, Green Acres, to use an example near me, have given up some of their independence and now pay the county sheriff to function as their police rather than be in the business of policing themselves. So that the lines blur over time as well. I think it helps, too, that, uh, you know, at least in terms of, of, of helping to keep the creepiness of Florida going, it helps that uh, Stephen King has relocated there, and he's now started to use that as some of the centerpiece of some of his stories. Uh, uh, Duma Key was, was one of the books that I remember, you know, taking place in the Keys, but uh, he's used other Florida locations, and I think that that kind of helps. I think that there's been a number of different shows i th- i think that show uh, invasion about the alien invasion mm-hmm. that had eddie Sibrian, i think that took place in florida yep. so so you're getting a lot of these more modern stories too so as much as you've had this long history of it it's it's something that hasn't gone away either yeah, i mean um herschel gordon lewis the man who invented modern day horror movies with on screen gore florida and the reason he was down here was because they were filming nudie cuties, which were basically, quote-unquote, educational films about the virtues of nudism. And when that market started to um, dry up, I mean, how many versions of a film can you make where there's a bunch of people playing volleyball? Uh, That movie, Um, a thousand of them at least. Apparently they did. I'll download them all. When when the meat, it started to dry up a little bit, he tried to figure out where to go next, and that's where you see things like Blood Feast where he's filming at a, uh, a hotel that's now underneath a Trump Tower, by the way, in Miami, North Miami. He's using Miami, North Miami's garbage trucks at the end, and he invented a type of blood that his the victims could spit out because the real stuff they were using at those days was black and white, so it was basically chocolate. Or if you had to use red, the stuff was poisoning people. So they, he actually invented online realistic, quote-unquote, blood to be spit out by the victims. Hmm. There, there's, there's, there's the ingenuity of the Florida people for you. 
is is what would you say is probably the most famous horror connection to Florida, whether it be a, a true story or or being used in a, in a fictional piece? What's probably what Florida is most known for? Oh boy, um, I I'm going to answer that with with two different sites. How's that? Sure. Uh, one I'm going to say Creature of the Black Lagoon, the trilogy. Which is a which is a you know the last of the universals, and that's a fun one because they literally filmed that everywhere. They filmed it at Marineland on the Atlantic coast, up by St. Augustine. They filmed it in um, Crystal Springs, which is in the middle of the street. Um, the second movie was shot at Hamasa Springs. Um, the final movie was shot at Fort Myers in the uh, Caloosahatchee River. It's. It is the embodiment of Florida. We want to film in swamps and water. We shall go to Florida and film it. But my personal favorite is Key West. Key West is a tourist town, and the number one tourism down there is the supernatural. Mm-hmm. They have the Dal Robert, which supposedly, if you annoy it or mock it in the museum, it will then ill fortune will befall you until you send a note apologizing to Robert and the museum has literally has a wall full of these apologies behind the doll um, they filmed a lot of low budget horror down there of course but H.P. Uh, Lovecraft also visited uh, Key West and while he was down here that was as close as he came to the tropics he went back to Miami and uh, this this is a beautiful segue. It has nothing to do with the question, but it's a beautiful segue. Hold me with this one. No, no problem. Goes to Miami, takes a glass bottom boat ride into Biscayne Bay, sees the coral reefs, goes back to Providence, and then writes the Shadow Over Innsmouth, which is about a coral reef off the coast. So Florida's claim to fame may also be that Lovecraft really, really liked visiting. I mean, even to this day, people are going down there and and trying to reach out to, uh, you know, the ghost of Hemingway is is a is a huge mm-hmm. thing in the paranormal world. Uh, and of course, uh, one of, one of the stories that I was very intrigued because, um, as I mentioned, you were on hold, but you couldn't hear us because you heard the Red Sox. But uh, the new show, Haunted Towns, that premieres August fifteenth on Destination America. One of the towns that I was looking into for that was Key West, and as I'm researching that, you know. Is uh, well, not just the town, but the, the entire area of Key West. Not only does it have all these great stories of people going out and trying to reach out to Hemingway and some of these other ghosts, and uh, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but there's the guy who had the Count corpse. Von Kozel. Yes, yes, having the corpse live with him for years. The Key West necrophiliac. And uh, and even to the to the modern era, to the 1970s, with the police chief Bum Fardo, who. You know, gets involved with the mafia and and disappears. Funny how that happens. Yeah, and then just to, you know, I, I love the fact that they sell T-shirts and bumper stickers that say, you know, where is Bum Fardo? Well, the fun thing about Key West is it. You get down there during the day. It's it's the beaches, the sunset at the fireworks. At night, it's the ghost tours. There's practically a traffic jam of ghost tours in that town. It's wonderful. Sometimes it's more fun to watch than it is to participate, but um, they've got one of the most beautiful little cemeteries down there. And I, um, the uh, Count von Kozel's victim, 
girlfriend. I'm not sure what we <laughs> yeah, call her in a case like this, but uh, she supposedly is still buried there in one or more small plots unmarked and now lost to time. So she tends to be very popular on the ghost tours as well. And that was one of those stories where they're not exactly sure. I, I, for those who aren't familiar with, with Count von Kolsel, he was Carl Tanzler was his real name. And, mm-hmm. and he was a doctor. He was what, a back, bacteriologist, I think? Oh, no, he wasn't even a doctor. He was an x-ray technician. He pretended oh, okay. to be a doctor. Oh, okay. So he, I guess he had, he was in love with this woman when she was alive and when she died, he, he took her body and had her live with him and, Yep, he he. She was married. She had tuberculosis. When she died, he, the the husband took off when she got sick, and he uh, he convinced the family to let him build her a tomb, and he would visit her regularly in the tomb. And at some point over the course of the years, he got in a little red wagon and he brought Elena home with him. Now the. There are some great pictures. Key West Library has got a um, online presence for graphics, and they've got pictures of Alina's tomb. If you look at it, it has a very um, clean lines, but it looks like the Taj Mahal done on a very Spartan, almost uh, brutalist level. It's got the arches. It's got the, the columns on either side. It's just really, really creepy. And, of course, after he was let free, because there was statute of limitations on desecration of a corpse, that particular vault mysteriously blew up about the same time as he got on a train heading back home. But they, the plaque from that tomb is still in, in several pieces, but it still exists, and it's in the same Key West Museum as Robert the Doll. Hmm. So it's like, that. if there's one building in Key West, I do not want to go into at night. I think that one qualifies. <laughs> well, what's worse is, 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 is you can actually see the photos that they found of, uh, of Elena Hoyos' body because the Count actually kept her for eight years, uh, tied her together with piano wire and put glass eyes in when her own eyes rotted out and would dump perfume all over it so you wouldn't smell the decomposition. And my favorite mm-hmm. part... He added a tube into her nether regions so that he could repeatedly, repeatedly over the course of eight years, have sex with her corpse. Well, they were legally married, <laughs> at least as far as he was concerned. It, well, I, I mean, I guess, you know, you can live in sin and still do if that. Your, uh, yeah. your co-hosts have suddenly gotten very quiet. Exactly. Yes. No, you should see the look <laughs> on Stephanie's face. It's, it's, it's wonderful. I can only imagine what my face looks like right now. Thank you for sharing. I mean, it wasn't so bad, except like around no. year six, he was starting to yell at her like, you always just lay there. Why don't you ever, you know, you just lay there and don't do anything. So uh, well, there, there's, that's, that's a classic example of Florida. The, the story changes from, from person to person. There are people who claim that he had the remains of an old airplane next to his cottage or shack, and his ultimate plan was to resurrect her. And then they would fly away to heaven in his airplane. Now, the fact that the airplane had no front, no motors, and, you know, apparently that's some sort of celestial intervention involved. But 
It's just a weird, weird case. There's been a lot of books about that case, and I don't think any one of them has got it right. There's just too much variation between them. Right, and and you had mentioned Robert the Doll, which I think is probably you know Florida's paranormal rock star, and and Chris wrote about it. Uh, Chris Balzano, who is in the chat room on SpookySouthCoast.com and on YouTube, you know he when we wrote our book Haunted Objects, he covered Robert in depth, but. I dove back into that story in doing the research uh, that I've just been doing, and that story is fascinating, too, because it's another one of those cases where we don't actually know the truth behind it, and, and the legend has become so strong that it overtakes any any shadow of the truth anyway, and it's become this just this great tale that people tell, but it's something that's still alive today because you still have to follow those rules if you go and see Robert the Doll, or else you could end up part of that tale. And that's not one story I feel a need to be a participant in. Right. Chris actually was. You know, he actually has had interactions with Robert. So uh, I, I highly recommend anybody picks up Haunted ha- uh, haunted Objects. Sorry. I'm, I'm so much into my own plugs that I'm confusing them. Uh, that's so but, funny. But what, what I always found fascinating about that story, too, is that with the Robert the Doll story, it, there's there's that variation as to... Where did the doll come from? You know, some say the housekeeper gave it to, to, uh, Jean, that it was something that was created with voodoo in mind. Other people say it was just, you know, something that was created for him in his likeness as a gift. You know, there's, there's all these stories. And when you have that mystery that can never actually be pinpointed, it just yeah, leads to I, so much more speculation. That's, that's one I, re- if Key West was a little bit closer, that's, that's kind of a mantra for me. If St. Augustine was a little bit closer, if Tampa Bay was a little bit closer, that, that is a, that is a story I would love to pursue much, much deeper. And I guess they but, used, they used to bring Robert other places, but now he just spends time between two different museums down in Key West. Yeah. But I, I suppose if you're going to be technical about what the rock star is, I'm not sure it's Robert as much as it's the Bermuda Triangle. Right. Which, of course, one of the points is Fort Lauderdale, if I remember. And uh, I just had the opportunity to go through the, the Bermuda Triangle uh, a couple of months ago, and I came back alive. I made it. But uh, not everybody has been so or fortunate. so you claim. I think I'm here. Well, we did have some UFO activity while we were out there. We were out doing some UFO searching. And Moniz is showing. You can put it up to the one of the cameras, Moniz, and Matt can get a shot of it. If he's if he's if he's uh, able to, but Matt Moniz has a picture of him and Robert the doll there. And uh, Moniz, did you pull in Elena Hoyos with Robert's body? Did you? No. Okay. No. All right. No. <laughs> I I'm not a hundred percent sure Elena's tombstone or the I suppose it's a plaque is actually on display most of the time. I got a feeling it's just way too much for the volunteers. Yep, that's our boy. <laughs> yep. Uh, the the good thing about. Um, Getting back to the to the Bermuda Triangle, the good thing about that though is, it's it's a, it's another one of these living stories. I mean, it's I mean, I guess it's not a good thing for those who are the ones that are disappearing, but they're still having issues of disappearances to this day. It's not something that is in the past. It's something that when you go through there, there is that chance that you might become part of the legend because, as recently as I think it was uh, 2013, they had a disappearance there. Yeah, and it it doesn't surprise me between and and. Even if it's not a supernatural event, that is just a bad stretch of water, plain and simple. Um, but just to play devil's advocate here, that whole area also includes an area that I've been playing in because Bermuda has a 
folk tradition of giant squid. Oh, so if you, yeah. you've got your little boat, well, maybe it looks like lunch. I, I can tell you that when, when we were out there, we we were uh, part of a paranormal cruise, and, and John Tenney was in contact with some occultists' friends that were back in Detroit, and they said on this one particular night, when it's midnight in Detroit, we want you to go out onto the ship uh, and on whatever side it was. I forget which side it was. The, le- the left <laughs> side. Port. Okay, port. so on the port side, everybody gathered together on the port side, and uh, at exactly midnight, these occultists were all getting together, and they were going to try and conjure up something from below the surface. And as we're all standing there, this is about an hour after we had been spotting some UFOs on a UFO watch at the bow of the ship. See the bow, I remembered. So as we were uh, standing there and we're looking underneath the water, we start seeing these little lights that are flashing underneath the water and, and kind of flickering back and forth. And different. It looked like something was lighting up and moving underneath the water. So there's uh, there's certainly enough weird stuff out there and enough weird energy put into it that it helps some of these things, I think, have strength. Yeah. But, I mean, keep it. this is Florida where we have a marker for ships lost at sea and airplanes lost at sea. And, of course, the famous airplanes that are lost at sea were the Bermuda Triangle out of the Fort Lauderdale Naval Air Station. Mm-hmm. And they don't actually specifically have a monument to those ships, but those were men lost at sea. So technically, the monument at Fort Lauderdale Hollywood Airport is to those guys as well. And actually, that's one of the bigger losses Naval Air Station had down there. So it's it's just a it's just a holiday up there. Well, and we mentioned, of course, rock stars of Florida, and and one of the I guess rock stars would be Coral Castle. Yeah. That's something that Coral we've covered uh, in the past here too. Mm-hmm. Well, th- my personal favorite, and it's one that I, I is actually not as famous as it used to be, is the giant octopus of St. Augustine. Oh, what's that one all about? I, I was hoping you'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> 1896, something washed ashore on Anastasia Island, which is the barrier island in front of St. Augustine. Um, 22 feet long, uh, 6 feet high, uh, up to 12 feet wide, pinkish-gray mass, no evidence of a skeleton. The immediate assumption was that it was a giant octopus that had washed ashore. And it, what it was actually got this, um, lost in the fight over who, who got to control this giant, you know, seven tons of meat. And they sent pictures up to Smithsonian who said, well, yeah, it, it, it could be a giant octopus. And, they sent samples up there, and suddenly they said, "Oh no, that's not a giant octopus. That's that's almost entirely that's 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 not a giant octopus. There's no tentacles. There's no structure. This is just collagen." And that was the end of it, as far as the Smithsonian was concerned. But it took them almost to 2004, comparing tissue samples to figure out that it was actually the sac from the head of a sperm whale. So it's just one big empty bag that had washed on shore. But another example of a folk tale, it, in a hundred years, it took to kill it. And I'm still not 100% sure they did kill it. 
the cryptozoology crowd really hates to lose that one. Well, we, we do have a question in the chat room, and people can uh, put their questions in the chat room at SpookySouthCoast.com or on the Spooky South Coast app or on YouTube, uh, or you can call in 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. But getting back for a moment, uh, Ross in the chat room wants to know what you think about Coral Castle, if you have any thoughts on Coral Castle. I'm impressed that they found a picture of the St. Augustine octopus right Matt, now. Matt is on point. He is, I tell he is you. the best. If he can, if he knows who took that picture, I'll give him double points. Oh, he might find it. Oh, I know he'll find it, but if he doesn't, uh, man who created the St. Augustine Historical Society, a fellow named Dewitt. Wow. Um, like I said, I've been putting a lot of time into sea serpents down here lately. Um, as for Coral Castle. I'm not sure what to make of it. I mean, I know the I know the tourist spiel. It was built by one man mm-hmm. by himself and um, with the unpronounceable last name that he has. I will uh, never forget it. Edward Leedskalnen. Yeah, I, I'm Dutch. I got enough of my problems of my own name. Um, <laughs> that, that that's emblazoned into my mind forever from the episode that we did on it. <laughs> but I mean. For for those who don't know what it is, it is a um, beautiful, beautiful thing. He supposedly built it to, because he was spurned by his uh, betrothed, who frankly sounded a little young for him. But that's that's just between you and me. Um, <laughs> well, it, it is Florida, so yeah, well, yeah. Even Florida's got no. Who am I kidding? We got no standards. Um, <laughs> um, it's. Something like 1,100 tons of coquina, which is basically a sedimentary rock, uh, shaped and placed into position, apparently by himself. Um, Carved furniture, castle tower. um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the, 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 the thing I usually throw out at people is it's technically, it's not a coral castle, it's a Coquina is actually a type of limestone, but that doesn't really impress anybody anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, coquina carves very easily with metal tools, but in terms of getting a multi ton slab up on its side, in the immortal words of the Marquis de Sade, beats me. Right. I mean, it is. And, and that is believed to be a place that brings a lot of power and energy uh, to it. And that, that could be helping to feed into all the weirdness of Florida. Yeah. As as well, one possibility. I think, I think I mean. weirdness in Florida may be a little redundant by itself, but. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Moniz. Yeah. What, what are your takes on the St. Augustine Lighthouse? You know what? My the first thing I always ask is which one do you mean? Because um, I think half of the stories that you hear about the the, the barbershop whole one, the current one, yeah. actually date back to the previous one, which was a a shorter coquina. Again, we're back to that um, structure that was built by the Spanish. And it's actually only a—I um, don't even think it's two miles down the road—and it's—it's just stone ruins at this point. But a, a number of the haunting stories that I've heard, it seems like they're confusing the two lighthouses. 
so that's that's kind of where I walk into it. There's a there's a lot of ghost stuff, but and there's a lot for two even. But to have two right next to each other like that, mm. I mean, it's, it's weird. It's weird even by St. Augustine standards. It's certainly a go-to destination for a lot of people, though, when they want to go down there and check out some of the, uh, you know, some of these Florida stories. That's always on everybody's map. Mm-hmm. And I know that we were talking about how Disney has become such a, 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 a piece of identity of Florida, you know, the main piece of identity for Florida for a lot of people. And Disney has its ghost stories, too. Disney has its weirdness stories. Disney has all of these strange things that are associated with it as well. Uh, I'm, I'm even thinking about the fact that there was, um, w- there was a book that came out a few years ago, probably about 10 years ago now, where uh, that talked about Disney's connections to ley lines. I don't mean to hang I up. Wanna, hang I, up I, 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 that threw me for a loop because I don't think I've heard that one before. I'll have to see if I can. I know I got it originally as an ebook, and I might still have it saved in my files. I'll see if I can get it over to you. But that was the that was just one of the many theories is that that's why Disney is a place of such energy is because it's built on ley lines and that they were trying to funnel some of that energy. But just Disney in general has weird stories associated with it. Yeah, well, if if you ever look at a map of the Magic Kingdom and the uh, Utilidors underneath, that does have some alignment to it. Uh, w- whether that's just construction and architecture, or if it's deliberate, that's that's out of my field. But I will tell you my favorite story about Disney it has nothing to do with Orlando. It's actually Anaheim. When they opened Pirates of the Caribbean. Walt didn't think the skeletons looked realistic enough. So he went to uh, the University of California and got real-life skeletons and put them in the exhibit. So when you went through Pirates of the Caribbean, when you saw the skeletons, they were actually skeletons. And it was only later when the technology caught up and he could make realistic-looking skeletons that they quietly got rid of them. But there's a persistent rumor to this day that if you look in the pirate's treasure room at the end of the ride, there's a skull in the back of it, and that actually is the last piece of the live bodies that were there. That is a real skull, supposedly. Mm. Well, before we get off the subject of Disney, I do want to point this out. And, of course, the Muppets are now owned by Disney. And the story broke this week that uh, Steve Whitmire had been fired as the voice of Kermit the Frog. So I'm just going to ask you, Dave, because you're in Florida, and I'm going to ask Chris, because he's in Florida, if anybody has some free time, want to go over to Disney, to the to the Henson Studios, and recommend me as a possible <laughs> replacement for Steve Whitmire as the voice of Kermit. I'd be more than happy to be the new Kermit the Frog. I, I think they already replaced him, but... It, it doesn't matter. He won't be as good as me. <laughs> well, that's true. All right. I've actually been to the Henson Studios after uh, in Hollywood. I'm sure that must have been amazing. Oh, it was incredible. Um, But the most incredible part to me, and this this may be a geek thing or it may be an age thing, is the Jim Henson Studios are the old Charlie Chaplin studio. Mm -hmm. Yep. And for all the stuff we saw, I mean, we saw the original puppets from Dark Crystal. We saw them filming an episode of Sid, whatever the heck the kid show is. We saw... The Muppets, we and all this stuff. The my highlight of that visit was 
picture of me standing next to Charlie Chaplin's original film vault, oh, wow. which is a metal vault on the outside of the building because, of course, films were uh, flammable. And all the film, I mean, that's, I mean, it, I'm geeking out just thinking about it again. Well, so close to so much greatness. I, I mean, and, and, and not to, to bring it back to the Muppets for a moment, but. You know, I've had the chance with working with different conventions and, and, and Comic-Cons, I've had the chance to, like, kind of hear some pretty fascinating celebrities tell stories, and I've heard some pretty good, like, inside Hollywood stuff. And I think one of my favorite speakers I've ever heard listen was Mike Quinn, who was a Muppeteer. And hearing him talk about, you know, working on the Dark Crystal, working on on even working on Star Wars and things like that. You know, he's nine nub. And so he, to hear all of these stories about working closely with Jim Henson was uh, yeah. was fascinating to me. And, and there was definitely a magic around that. And I'm sure that that magic already tapping into the Charlie Chaplin magic kind of only amplified it even more. It, it, it's an unbelievable place. You can feel the creativity oozing out of the buildings as you walk in. And but, uh, really, really was a highlight of the the trip to me before we leave florida and we come north back to new england and bring you back home i do want to ask you about casadega because again uh, you know spiritualism is something that i've uh, been talking about quite a bit lately i just lectured on it again last weekend at uh, ocean state Paracon, and casadega is just one of those places it's it's like lilydale south and and it's just it's it's a fascinating story so uh, what, what what's the deal with casadega well, funny, funny you call it Lilydale South because technically Casadega was supposed to be Casadega South. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, it's named after um, a uh, upstate New York transmedium um, operation. Um, it was actually, I think it was he left Casadega, New York, under orders from his spirit guide, came down here, and it's. Uh, it's really not that good of a neighborhood, if you know what I mean. It's just swamp all the way around. It is um, a small town that is mostly psychics and mediums, and one of the creepiest cemeteries ever is the Lake Helen Cemetery, which is right next door to it. And it has one of those, um, and I think, I think... I can't remember who brought it up originally. It might have been on your website looking around. It has a devil's chair in it. Mm-hmm. And the story there is if you sit in the chair, nothing bad will happen, but you need to leave an unopened beer behind the chair because after you leave, the devil's going to come up and see what the heck's been going on. And if he doesn't have his refreshment, somebody's going to pay for it. Um how can you go wrong with a town like that, especially when you put it in Florida? Well, I mean, and all of these places, I think, help with, you know, the fact that this is a go-to destination for people who are tapping into a certain kind of energy. It, it helps with raising that, that level of energy. Uh, you know, Stephanie, you probably can speak to this better than I can, but having a group of people who are supposedly operating on a, on a higher vibrational level is only going to kind of raise the vibrational level up around it, I would assume. No, it definitely does. And you can definitely feel the difference of walking into a room full of those type of people and just walking into, let's say, the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, How about walking into a cemetery full of those people? That would be pretty interesting, I think. That's, that's Lake Helen Cemetery, where all the Casadagans are buried. Hmm, interesting. I apologize, Matt, for... Uh, 
for messing up your camera shot of me, but I, I can't sit in that chair. you got to stand up for a minute. This, this chair is killing me. Yeah, mine's not feeling too good either. But uh, <laughs> but I, 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 I did lie, Dave, when I said we're going we're gonna to leave Florida with that. Because I do want to ask you, is, is Gibb Town still a thing down in Florida, the, uh, the retired circus community? Not as much as it used to be. I mean, the, the, in a statement I don't believe I would have ever said out loud if they would ask me, I believe most of the freaks have died off. <laughs> um, the, Not in our audience. Are, <laughs> well, I was thinking professionals, but okay. Um, there are some minor th- th- things there. Um, to be honest, it's more interesting to go up to the cemetery where people like Lobster Boy are buried. And, uh, but Gibtown is there. It's unfortunate that, um, it wasn't preserved. But I suppose even the most liberal of chambers of commerce are going to get a little cranky about pet zebras and pet lions wandering around. Well, I mean, I just ask only because, you know, the, the Barnum and Bailey Circus, Ringling Brothers, is over now. So I'm sure that a lot of those folks are going to retire and, and they'd be probably looking to go to a place like that yeah i mean i think gibbs uh gibtown probably had its last hurrah and i i may be wrong about this it, when um scully and Mulder visited back in uh like season two oh, i forgot I mean, all about that yeah i way going way back um american horror story really missed an opportunity when they uh they could have put the season with the freak show over there, but for some reason they chose to put it on the uh, Atlantic coast. Yeah, I mean, I it think it was been, su- actually would have been down by me in Jupiter. I think it was supposed to be, uh, you know, it was supposed to be a like an allegory to that. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. It's a, it's, but uh, Gibbs Town was basically the winter home for the circus sideshow, and. Um, the design. The, I do not know if they ever changed the zoning laws, but they were allowed to keep circus animals and circus trailers. And it, I'm not sure there's enough of them left that it's a community the way it used to be. So I, I there is supposedly um, traces of it if you know what to look for, where the giant. I can't. I think it was actually called the Giant Diner. The, the world's tallest man had a restaurant. There was, he actually had one of his old shoes out front, you know, size a hundred and billion, triple X wide type thing. And I have heard rumors. I have not been able to find it. I have not confirmed it. But I have heard rumors that a piece of that show is still adhered to the uh, wall or the um, the brick fence that near where the building was. So. So it's more like traces. The, there, there should have been more work done to preserve it, but you know, who, who knew the circus would ever die? Well, why don't we kind of use that circus connection to, uh, you know, to kind of bring it back to New England a little bit? There was Mrs. Tom Thumb from Middleborough, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So General Tom Thumb, who was part of the circus for many years, you know, his wife is is a bumpus from from Middleborough. Coming back up that to New England. A, that was a beautiful segue, Thank by the you. way. It's also, I think, the first time anybody's ever used Mrs. Tom Thumb as a segue, mm-hmm. uh, and probably be the last. But <laughs> Well, that, that's really between her and Mr. Tom Thumb. Um. 
is do you find and of course you have two books from from this series uh with both northern new england and massachusetts do you find that this area is just more flush with horror connections and strange stories than florida or do you see it as kind of being you know uh, it was it, it wasn't so hard to find them in either place i think the difference particularly with massachusetts compared to florida is that new england venerates the old Florida tends to bulldoze it and put up a Trump Tower right so as a result the old buildings remain so do the old stories now Mrs. Tom Thumb to, to fall back on your segue was a bumpus as you said yes bumpus is a very 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 old name in Massachusetts. In fact, it was the second boat. Mayflower was first. Bumpuses came over on the second boat. That's how far back it goes. Um, it has absolutely nothing to do with Mrs. Uh, I really don't like calling her Mrs. Thumb. Um, but it's an example of what you're talking about. She could, if she chose to, or if I chose to, for that matter, we could trace her all the way back of the Plymouth Colony and the 1640s. And then because of her affiliation with Plymouth, we could take her back to England. You don't see that in Florida. In Florida, you have, yes, you have St. Augustine, the oldest continually inhabited place, but none of the buildings date back that far. There were older buildings in New England because the English burned St. Augustine to the ground in the 1710s. So, yes, it's the oldest continually inhabited, but the buildings only date back, only, you can tell I'm a New Englander, they only date back to the 1700s. Plymouth Rock, 1640. How many stories are attached to that alone? You know, Plymouth Colony, possible cannibalism, the first bad winter. It just, it stays, the stories stay when the property stays, when the buildings stay. Are there ghosts in Florida? Yeah, but where's the ghost going to go when you tear down the building it haunts? Right, and well, unfortunately, a lot of the times they just stay on the property and they stay into the new dwelling, which is what we see a lot of here in New England. You know, we have people say, well, my house is only, you know, 40 years old. How could it be haunted? Yeah, but what was there first? And that's where it comes down. Florida, you know, um, the best, I'm trying to think of a good example, and there really aren't any. The old houses were shacks along the rivers or the shacks along the ocean. And there's nothing there now. Those shacks are, um, you know, Lake Worth, go back to the old hometown here, that was a series of fishing shacks along Lake Worth back when it was still fresh water. Then they opened up the outlet and made it brackish, but... Those, there's nothing there to haunt because it's now beach. And the buildings have been set back because of environmental concerns. So what's a spirit to do? There does seem to be, uh, with, with New England stories, with New England legends, and it, it doesn't have to be just ghosts. It, ha- you know, it can happen. We have our own sea creature stories. We have our own cryptid stories. You know, All of these stories that we have... There is a very much a, a protective nature around these stories that even if people don't believe them, 
even if people want to consider them all to just be storytelling and hogwash, we also don't want anybody else bastardizing them either. They have become part of our fabric. And these this goes all the way back to the time of the pilgrims when we had stories that were coming even from that era that they were very protective of. So it's it's kind of ingrained in us as New Englanders to protect our legends. Yes. And we've got certainly enough of them. Uh, French and Indian War, um, from my neck of the woods up in Haverhill, you, oh, let's not forget our Hannah Dustin. What, what's what's um, that story? But Salem Witch Trials. Salem, the Salem Witch Executions were not the first witch executions in New England. Mm-hmm. But they're the ones that have become, um, to phrase it indelicately, marketable. Connecticut had a number of hangings that predate Salem by decades. They were embarrassed by them. They had, they've gone away. They're starting to get a little more press nowadays. But when you say witches, New England, you immediately go to Salem. You don't think Connecticut. Right. And well, and one of the the things too that's uh, amazing about the Salem stories is that people don't understand all of the background behind it. They don't understand the history behind it. They don't understand the just, just the, the way that things were in Salem at that time, with the, just the the politics of the area, with the the class warfare that was going on there. You know, there's a lot of aspects of that story that are just lost in. The basic telling of you know there was this this uh, this uh, housekeeper that you know put these girls into a spell and next thing you know everybody's getting hanged for being witches. Yeah, and the the kicker to this whole thing is Salem isn't where it all took place. It took place in Danvers. Right. Well, it was it was Salem, Salem Village, Village at the time. The, but. The, the, the court case and everything were in Salem proper, but you know Giles Corey was actually pressed to death out, out in Danvers which is still a rough way to go, but um, but people forget that that wasn't a standalone. There was the Connecticut cases beforehand. Then there's this, the second spike of the witch trial, which took place in Andover, which in those days was everything north of Salem all the way up to the Merrimack River, so North Salem, uh, North Andover, and everything. In, in Andover, somebody's wife got sick. And this rocket scientist came up with the idea, well, perhaps she's bewitched. Let's bring a couple of the accused witches from Salem up here and see what they think. Right. What could possibly go wrong? And then a lot of it was uh, based on, you know, courtroom theatrics, where, Mm -hmm. you know, if you bring those girls into the room, well, of course the the person who's accusing them of witchcraft is going to have an adverse reaction to them, because otherwise everybody's going to know you're making up this story. Yeah. And it, but I think part of it also up in New England is interconnectivity. I, the Salem witch trials, everybody knows who, you know, who Nathaniel Paris's witch, this, uh, the, in, up in the north, in the Andover spike, it's a little less known. Timothy Swan, um, accused a number of women of being witches, most of whom had turned him down, but that's a, that's a coincidence, I'm sure. Um, and Timothy Swan had previously um, been the father of an illegitimate child of Hannah Dustin's sister. Hannah Dustin's sister, the children died. She was accused of 
killing them, which it's a very long, and you don't want to get into it now. It's not actually, a, it's not a hanging offense to kill your children. It's a hanging offense to hide the fact that they died. So she was hanged in Boston Common by Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather, of course, is the person who then interviews Hannah Dustin about her exploits with the Indians and round and round and round we go. Right. You don't that's that's something you don't see in Florida and part of it is because nobody's admitting anything but in New England we embrace it. Yes, this woman was captured by Indians. Yes, she killed 12 Indians who were probably had nothing to do with her kidnap. But let's put a statue up anyway. And then let's let's believe that a woman who's never ridden in a canoe along with her elderly midwife and a teenager from Worcester, then get into a canoe at night in the winter and manage to go from Concord, New Hampshire, to back down to Haverhill in the frozen water with the ice and, the, of course, the waterfalls that nobody seems to mention at all. Yeah, let's, let's embrace it and not look at the holes in that theory. Pet peeve, by the way. No, no, understandable. There's there's a lot of I don't want to say whitewashing to some of the New England stories because you know that's that's kind of where they came from originally was from the colonists from the settlers but there definitely seems to be a lens to a lot of these early stories uh, we're 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 looking at the world through Puritan eyes for a couple of hundred years and even now even to this point when we do what we do up here you know going to all these ghost places we still have to deal with a lot of the still uh, you know, b- bubbling below the surface Puritan idealism that that still exists around here, and that oh, has yeah. it, it, it's kind of demonized a lot of what could be just regular strange activity that has suddenly turned into you know evil and and negative and the work of the devil. When in actuality, if we had just been kind of pursuing this stuff to begin with, we might have a better idea of the bigger picture of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So it's it's. It's it's inter it's more interesting to work in New England than it is in Florida, and as it turns out, it's more interesting than working in Pennsylvania because unless you're a big fan of Romero and Shyamalan, there ain't a heck of a lot else going on in that state. Right, and uh, you know, rest in peace, George Romero. Mm-hmm. We should put that out there. We lost him this week, uh, yep. and uh, I was I was pleasantly surprised that uh, nobody made any jokes about him coming back from the dead. So. Oh, I did. Just oh, you did? through my Facebook history. Okay. <laughs> well, if anybody had to do it, Dave, I'm not surprised it was you. I, I, I was actually accused by my brother of too soon. Well, yeah, I think, I think that probably might have been. But, you know, when you're dealing with zombies, how long is too soon? You don't want to wait too long, right? Exactly. You know, you got to kind of get it going there. So... Uh, we're not going to go into the whole zombies versus ghoul thing, please. We but, only have a finite amount of time here. But there are, I mean, there are zombie stories that pop up as well. I mean, there's there's even going back to the colonial era. I'm not sure how familiar you are with them. But even going back to the colonial era around here, there's there's still stories of, of the undead coming back to life. Those who were thought to have perished, you know, uh, in the harsh winters, still seen in the springtime, you know, coming back, walking in from the woods. You know, there's... there's oh, yeah, that's practically a mythic archetype up here. And it's certainly something that isn't going to go away anytime soon with all this attention being paid to zombies. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I, the zombies were kind of passe for a while, and apparently they're back. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of these types of stories are cyclical in nature. You know, there are there are time periods where some stories are told more than others. What's what's kind of your favorite? And when when we're dealing with New England, and this could be either for the horror guide to Massachusetts or the horror guide to northern New England, but when you're dealing with stories up in this area, like what's kind of your favorite? Do you have like a favorite era, a favorite uh, concentration of stories, a favorite area? What what is it that kind of stands out to you that if somebody said to you down in Florida, "Hey Dave, you're from New England. Tell me one really weird story up there that would be something that I wouldn't normally hear about." Oh God, I love getting caught by surprise. I was that is not something I was expecting. Well, but I'm not going to ask the usual questions. That's here. All right, I got I got it. It it just takes me a minute sometimes to think out loud. In the Crawford Notch, up in the White Mountains, there is a story that uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne used to tell. In fact, he made it into a story. And I'm, I'm completely blanking on what the name of the story was. The Ambitious Guest. It's coming back to me. It has nothing to do with the fact that I have a PDF of the book in front of me. It's a short story he wrote. It was based on an actual story up there. And it was a family who, the, I'm gonna, the real story, he made it into a, uh, one of his uh, classic little pieces, but the real story is there was a family who set up a cabin at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain was prone to avalanches at this point. And what happens is they know there's a problem they they listen for rock slides all the time and this is a real case that happened uh, it's called the wiley tragedy back in like 1826 1827 somewhere in there so what this family does is they are they are so plagued by these rock slides and they're so afraid of them that they actually build a shelter made out of stone near the house so that if there is a rock slide, they can run out, go into this shelter, and be protected from it. Well, they hear the they hear the noise. They know there's a rock slide coming. They run out. They hide in their shelter, and they're killed because there was a ledge directly above the house that diverted the rock slide on either side of the house. And by skipping the house and going on either side of it with the rock slide, it hit their shelter instead. So they were killed trying to avoid a avalanche when if they had stayed in the house, they would have been fine. And that is how, in the White Mountains, Mount Wiley got its name. It's, it's still named that. It's uh, up on the west side of the notch. I'm I'm just I'm scrolling through the now for those who are not familiar with the horror guide series I mean you have as I mentioned the horror guide to Florida the horror guide to Massachusetts the horror guide to Northern New England is this going to be something that is going to be uh, you know across the nation is that the plan? Well, I don't think we'll live that long based on the <laughs> output level. Um, my brother is is uh, up to his armpits and other projects, so I'm doing Pennsylvania by myself right now which I can do because I lived in Pennsylvania for 10 years, so I've got some familiarity with that state as well. Um, 
we would like to get southern New England done next, but you know, it's it, that's basically Lovecraft, right? And um, a lot of lot of ghost movies in Connecticut. So we're we haven't been in a hurry. Lovecraft is one of my major projects down here, and I really find it very easy to get Lovecraft out when you're working on Lovecraft in Florida at the same time as you're working on a horror guide to Rhode Island. So we're we're staggering it a little bit now. Well, what I what I find interesting is the way that these books are set up, and kind of explain to the listeners uh, how how you put together these guides. Well. I used to use the term, imagine a, a turn-of-the-century gazetteer, but apparently nobody remembers gazetteers but me. It is a alphabetical listing of towns and villages, and in some cases a lot of specifics. When you get to a town like Boston, for instance, it's Boston, comma, a particular street name. So it's it's set up alphabetically by town, and it is a series of small listings for what took place on that location. And what it allows you to do is it's sort of a combination of suggested future reading, history of horror, and you know where films were shot. So it almost becomes a reader's advisory as well as a just a fun way to show what was filmed where within the state. And northern New England in particular has got some really funky stuff going on. Uh, Mystery Hill is the one that I use all the time. Uh, Mystery Hill, and this is one of my pet theories, is what Dunwich Harbor was based on. Um, Lovecraft had been visiting a um, suit. Apparently she thought it was, thought it was a romantic uh, suitor, it turns out Lovecraft just really liked to travel. And she brought him up there, saw the sacrificial table. A few years later, he writes the Dunwich Horror with its sacrificial table, and the description of walking up to the hill matches the terrain. The story itself is probably based on Wilbraham, Massachusetts. Uh, but the sacrificial table is North Salem, New Hampshire. Of course, Uncle Stevie lives up in Maine. Everybody knows that one. Right. But well, he's more down your neck of the woods these days, most of the time, anyway. Well, he owns the whole damn island at this point. <laughs> he has a huge estate on Casey Key. Um, probably, probably six or seven bedrooms. Um, it's got its own pool. And he didn't like one of the neighbors, so he bought him out. And that's his guest house. So he's got like three of these houses in a row now. So he's got, you know, 15, 16, 17 bedrooms between the two houses, three pools. Horror has been very good to Uncle Stevie. Well, and I think that that's part of the mentality of people in New England is it's, is for some reason there's something about our collective psyche up here that, that plays into that, that allows hard to kind of flourish. That's why you have people like, you know, I know that Poe was, you know, around the place, but Poe and, and Lovecraft and now Stephen King, you know, they, they have a lot of New England roots in what it is that they do. Yeah, and it, it, their predecessors as well. Uh, um, Sarah Orne Jewett, probably the first person to write a collection of stories 
some of which are uh, supernatural, some of which are not. But the concept of a unified world based on a community, that's her idea, Dunnett's Landing. That was before Arkham. That was before Castle Rock. She's the one who came up with that concept. It's a dying little fishing village on the coast of Maine, and that's where all her stories are set. That that was a brand new concept when she came up with it. There's, I mean, there's also there's horror stories that go back, and, and just scary stories that people would tell, going all the way back to, as I mentioned, you know, the Pilgrims, and and I've talked to our friend Jeff Campbell about this. He runs the the Plymouth Night Tours, and uh, they they have uh, a lot of different stories that they tell there, and uh, there's a lot of different haunted places in Plymouth that people can visit, but. You can just feel it when you go to a place like that. When you go to Plymouth, when you go to Salem, you can feel that in the air, and you can kind of feel that in the environment of this strangeness that goes on. Stephanie, you probably pick up on it anyway, ba- mm-hmm. based on things. But for even like the normal person, not that you're not normal, but oh, even for people you. that don't have your <laughs> ability to tap Care, into things, careful there, you're you're in trouble already. Right? <laughs> I'll just keep digging. Yeah. And uh, but you know, even just. Folks like us that don't have those sensitivities can experience it when we go there. We say, wait a minute, there's something about this place when I go there that just feels odd. Right. Well, Mystery Hill up in North Salem, um, which I have some minor familiarity with. I ran it for a couple of years. um, Is the closest I've got to an encounter because we were up there on Halloween, which... We were up there because we had to keep people off the site. You talk about insurance being an issue. Um, people wandering around the woods at night is not a good thing for your insurance. Right. So uh, people, locals would tend to want to go up there to, quote, unquote, see the witches. So we would go up there. And we would discourage people from going up there, and we would chase people off. Because the other thing that just concerned us is if somebody has a ceremony up there, um, and that wax drips into a sensitive test zone, it completely screws up the carbon-14 dating. I mean, Mystery Hill, for all its quaintness and all its odd history, is still a functioning, working archaeological site. And the last thing you need is a you know a 2000 BC carbon date that's messed up by somebody dropping candle wax on it. But we went up there, and we were not staying up at the top of the hill. We were using the viewing platform to keep an eye on things. But it's Halloween in New Hampshire. It tends to get a little nippy. So we were going up the trail, and over the tree line, suddenly coming down past us silently, three balls of white light just kept going and that was it Um, unfortunately the guy I was on patrol with had his weapon out already and was spooked to death I went up by myself after that Um, he calls them ghost lights I'm inclined to think they were uh, earthquake lights but I think that's just frame of reference more than anything else Um, I'm a big fan of um, tectonic stress syndrome as an explanation for some of the um, more questionable UFO sightings out there. And Mystery Hill 
has a is a classic example of a place that can issue earthquake lights. Uh, it's a piezo electric discharge, so Larry can have his job, and that would be similar to what we saw. But it, to this day, I still have no idea what we actually saw up there. Hmm. One of my favorite stories, and you mentioned it in uh, you, you have it in in the horror guide to Massachusetts. Is I don't know if you if you recall it off the top of your head, but Joseph Jeffries in in the town of Sandwich. Do you remember uh, that? Ah, yes. Just it's because Van Winkle. I, I I have a personal connection of of why I like this story, but uh, if you can share that with the listeners. Oh, I'm gonna pull. I'm gonna cheat and pull that one up out of the book. You absolutely can. There's nothing because wrong with that. I I. To tell you the truth, the, the Northern New England is the most recent one. Massachusetts was the earliest. Right. So I'm really a little out of sorts on some of this material, and I, I I don't like to admit I don't I don't read my own books regularly, but I don't read my own books regularly. No, I I feel the same way. Believe me. Yeah. Well, I have I actually own one of yours. Well, hold on to it because I saw one of them was selling for like fifty bucks on on uh, on uh, Amazon. So. Wow! Yeah, I'll have to get it signed that way. Oh, that'll anyway, just, that'll um, devalue it big time. <laughs> yeah, welcome to my world. Um, Joseph Jefferson was a, um, a stage actor. Back, this is uh, he died in 1905. Just to give you an idea how far back we're talking, and his signature role was Rip Van Winkle. And it's based on the Washington Irving story. It practically could have, I think he may have been able to perform it for Washington Irving. He'd been so long. But he made so much money, he actually bought a house. Uh, he called it the Crow's Nest. It was sitting on, uh, look, overlooking the Cohasset Narrows Bridge near what is now called Electric Avenue. Yep. We're going to rock on down to there after the show. <laughs> yes, you can. But it was um, really a weird situation because when it was being built, they uncovered a skeleton. And this is this is not some local rag. This is the New York Times who reported it. It was an oversized skull with no eye sockets, but a hole in the forehead. So Jefferson believed he had discovered the skeleton of a cyclops. The problem is that building and the skull were destroyed in a fire in 1893. So we'll never know for certain. But if you want to see what that section of Buzzard Bay looked like in the 1890s, you can still find pieces of the film Rip Van Winkle they shot in 1903, and they shot it in the riprap along the along the shoreliner, and and I think what I love about the Jefferson story is that uh, you know even though he did live in Buzzards Bay, he wanted to move to Sandwich. Yes, he did. And they didn't take too kindly with an actor wanting to come to town. Oh, scum of the earth! An actor person, <laughs> especially he, back uh, then, because we're talking about you know we're ta- back then you know before. Films had really become part of the culture. People really looked down on actors. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, this, this is a traveling actor. You know, that's one step above pond scum. Despite the fact he had one of the biggest houses in the area, and despite the fact that his next door neighbor and BFF was Grover Cleveland, right? Uh, 
he wanted to build his house in Sandwich. They wouldn't let him, so he built it where he did, and then he just got himself buried at Bayview Cemetery to spite them. So if you go up to Bayview Cemetery, there's a big boulder there that uh, he handpicked to mark his gravesite. And it's there specifically just to spite the neighbors. And uh, and from somebody that lives in Sandwich and, and wasn't too welcomed by the Sandwich people, you know, I, I, I can I can uh, sympathize with Joseph Jefferson. So, so you know, that's... It seems, to, it seems to be a thing with Sandwich. It still is. I was in, like, sixth grade at the time, but still. I was not exactly uh, treated well by the by the younger citizens of the town, so I understand exactly what he went through. And uh, I don't know I don't, if I'll go through the process of being buried there with a giant boulder, but it, at least it I... It does I'm, seem a little extra work, but... I am proud of him for sticking it to them, just a little bit. Good. Good good for all of us. And, again, so I know that, uh, you know, we've been talking about the the different stories around here and that you said that you are working on the Pennsylvania book. Is there, is there anything that you can give us as kind of a, a little teaser for, for Pennsylvania? Boy, there is so much stuff. Pennsylvania seems to be the place where people go to die. Um, I've got more cemetery listings already. I've only, uh, we're only about 40,000 K into this. So we're we're barely at the halfway mark, and it's I swear most of it is is burials and cemeteries. There's a lot of UFO um, stuff though too, right? Hmm? There's a lot of UFO stuff in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I haven't gotten to any of it yet. We're basically and we trying to. I, I I probably shouldn't admit this on this show, but we try to keep the paranormal and away from the horror because really, sure, that's not my field you want to talk about the history of Hershey chocolate and why HP Lovecraft loved it you want to talk about where the where um, Night of the Living Dead was filmed that's that's horror history I can deal with that but in terms of the supernatural it's not my strength there are uh, people like your crew who are far more qualified to discuss it well, but you also I don't, want to put, I don't want to put too much in my books because I'll just embarrass myself if I go into depth far enough. We also haven't jumped into one of our main areas of expertise tonight, one of the Spooky Crew's main area of expertise. But you just alluded to it when you mentioned Hershey's chocolate, and that, of course, is being snacks. That's something that we talk about quite a bit. But what what is what is you just got to give us a little teaser of the connection with Lovecraft and, and Hershey's chocolate? Lovecraft had a sweet tooth, plain and simple. Lovecraft, if he. Probably half of the reason why he died so young was because he was so malnourished most of the time. He didn't know he had uh, a cancer. That's how that's how bad his diet. He he took great pride in being able to eat on fourteen cents a day. Wow! Now, I actually I actually went out and did the math on this. It's not it's it's as bad as it sounds even today. A fourteen cents meal for him and he only ate once a day or twice if he was really feeling lucky was half a can of chili a block of cheese and a donut that was basically a day's food for him that actually doesn't sound that bad yeah for one meal (laughs) but what would happen is he would cut back even harder when he was traveling because he was so tight on the money and 
he would keep snacks in his room because that way he could eat that, buy it in bulk at the local supermarket, and not spend money on things like real food. And one of his favorite snacks was Hershey's chocolate. It kept well, except when he got to Florida, where he kind of stopped doing that. Um, But he would keep a can of nuts and some chocolate in his room, sometimes a little cheese, and some days that's all he was eating. So Hershey's chocolate was his favorite. He says so repeatedly in letters to people. In fact, his aunts, rather than send him presents, you know, clothes that he needed or cash that he needed, he wouldn't take it, but they would. he would take the chocolate when they mailed it. Hmm. Well, I can tell you now that the paranormal runs on Swedish fish up here now. Well, one of the great shortcomings to living in Florida, well, one of the many shortcomings to living in Florida is I can't get fluff. Well, we'll have to mail you down some. There's a world without I, I fluff is a world not worth living in. a five-pound bucket of the stuff on eBay or uh, Amazon. It uh, it was tempting. That's like my my love of uh, that that Jeff Belanger got me into. My love of Skyline Chili. Chili. That you know I can't get around here, so I had to work out a deal with Greg Newkirk to send him Necco wafers in exchange for Skyline Chili. I, I don't know of anybody who goes out of their way for Necco wafers, but okay. Yeah, apparently he loves old man candy, and that there's no more old man candy than Necco wafers. I'm going to tell you a story I have never told anyone. Oh. In my wild, impetuous use, I square danced. And the reason I tell you that horrible secret is because I danced at Northern Essex Community College, which is called up there Necco. Oh. So what do you give out to the guests when they come? Necco wafers. And what do they do with them? Throw them right back at you? I I don't remember everybody ever eating any, but... So I I just want to let you know that this this just popped up in the chat room. Chris Balzano says he can get fluff on his coast down in Florida. Well, again, he's... uh, Let me think. He's Fort Myers. So, well, listen, I don't know how long of the drive is from where you are to where he is, but it's got to be worth it to get some fluff from the guy. Well, it would, let's see, I'd have to go down to Fort Lauderdale, get on Alligator Alley, cross the Everglades, and come out near Estero, which I'll, I, I'm going to mention Estero again in a second now that I'm thinking of it, and then up to Fort, yeah, yeah, it's about, uh, it's about three and a half hours. Totally worth it. But, uh, Estero is, well, you talk about a Florida place, it was another cult like the Casadegas mediums. And they were. I mean, they aren't anymore, but at that point it was a medium cult. Uh, Estero was a group from up north who came down here and built a utopian society. Their belief was that the world was hollow and we lived on the inside. Mm. And it was a celibate cult, except for the, uh, of course, except for the master of the whole thing. And when he died, they, he, they, he said, don't bury me. Uh, I'll be back in a few days. So they, they put him in a nice, nice bathtub with some ice, and he didn't come back, and he didn't come back, and he didn't come back, and things started getting a little unpleasant. So they put him in a crypt, but the crypt actually had a door he could open when he did come back. And they waited five or six years, and he never came back, and the, the uh, entire operation folded eventually and his crypt was swept out to sea 
Mm. It's not the most auspicious end to a cult, but it's all we got. The old buildings from the Acero cult are now a state park. You can, it's a swimming and hiking thing, but it's also got an interpretive area with these old buildings. It amuses me. Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, why don't you let everybody know how they can get these books, The Horror Guide to Florida, The Horror Guide to Massachusetts, The Horror Guide to Northern New England, plus all of your other work. All of my other work as well. Everything I have, everything I ever wanted to be, everything that I plan to write will always be available on Amazon. Um, you can go to my website if you want, which is uh, my last name, goudsword.com. And you'll see my website, and you'll see my brother's website. Just click on my smiling face, and you'll go to my private little site, which basically lists every book I ever wrote and a few that I won't even admit to. And they're all there. And it's uh, it's absolutely worth going and checking out all of his work and check out some of his past visits with us here on Spooky South Coast. Dave, we thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully uh, you'll let us know when the Pennsylvania book is done. I will do that. And thank you for having me. All right. You have a great night, and uh, and say hi to Scott for us as well. I will do that. Thank you. All right. Take care. That is Dave Godsward. And, again, you can check out his website, godsward.com, G-O-U-D-S-W-A-R-D.com. And uh, we'll have it linked up on SpookySouthCoast.com as well for you. And it's absolutely worth going there and checking out and seeing all of the different work that they've done. Again, the Horror Guides, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, and the Great Altar Stones of New England. Uh, and that's one of the early things that we very one of the very early things we talked with Dave about on the show is ancient stone sites of New England and America Stonehenge, things like that. Definitely worth going back and checking out those episodes as well, which you can get all of our episodes free on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. Also on YouTube, we have all the video archives. Uh, pretty much everywhere you can everywhere you can find podcasts, you can find us. And I've noticed that. Over the years, you know, podcasts have become very protective of their archives. You can only get, like, the most recent ten episodes, and then you have to pay subscriptions for the rest of them. Yeah, eventually we might figure all that stuff out. But for right now, everything is free. So download them all now. Go back and get every episode that we've ever done. There's, there's over 500 of them. So if you've missed any, you've got some listening to do. Uh, next week we'll be back with Ben Jeffries. We'll be talking about The Boogeyman next week, which I'm pretty excited about. Creepy. I'm not going to blow my nose for an entire week. <laughs> So that when we come in next week, I will have plenty of boogies. Oh, my goodness. To get No, that's Perfect. gross. Uh, but we will be back next Saturday night. So until then, for Matt, for Matt, for Chris, for Stephanie, I'm Tim. And we want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>